0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea with Ann Johnson where we speak with some of the largest security influencers in the industry about what is shaping the cyber landscape and what should be top of mind for the C-suite and other key security decision makers. I'm Ann Johnson, and today I'm joined by cybersecurity veteran, Nicola Whiting. Nicola is the co-owner of the UK cybersecurity firm, Titania Group and the Worcestershire Commission for the UK Cyber Science and Innovation Audit. Nicola was named one of the 20 most influential women in cybersecurity, and she is considered an unsung hero in the industry for her leadership, security mentoring work, and her ability to translate complex security technology into straightforward language. Nicola specializes in enterprise security automation software, things like self-healing networks, business development, trust-based selling, and neuromarketing. Neurodivergent, Nicola advocates from experience for diversity in all forms, believing it will lead to broader and ultimately better solutions for our most pressing issues in cybersecurity, in business, and in everyday life. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea, Nicola. Oh, thank you so much, Anne, and it is great to be here, thank you. I'm I'm thrilled to have you because um, you you have such a unique area of expertise and one of the things we do every season on Afternoon Cyber Tea is we really do try to bring unique perspectives. And When we think about your expertise that intersects cybersecurity and diversity and psychology, I want to touch on all of those topics as we chat today um, and especially how they intersect with one another. But let's start with core cybersecurity. And you know, given it's timely for the time we're recording this, let's talk about ransomware, which by the way, I unfortunately think is gonna become timely even in the near to mid future. So we've seen a lot of nation state actors who are engaging in new reconnaissance techniques. They're increasing their chances of compromising high value targets. We also see the criminal groups targeting businesses and they've actually moved their infrastructure to the cloud to hide themselves amongst legit services Attackers have developed new ways to scour the internet for systems vulnerable to ransomware. We've seen just a lot of change, right? A lot of shift in the past six months about how both nation state and cybercrime gangs are working. I would love to get your perspective on the rise of ransomware and this high impact, and now it's become very much a
1: human-driven threat. So we say the rise of ransomware, but you know, ransomware started in what, 1989. So it's 32 years old this year. Um but it, it's pretty high. I mean, in uh, 2020 it was about 304 million attacks um, and that's the second biggest sort of attack since those records began. Um, I think the highest was in 2016 when I actually wrote an article on ransomware um, and, and spoke to Microsoft about that then. So it it's not new. And I think the reason it's so prevalent is... Um, Particularly during COVID, there were so many things people were interested in clicking on and, you know, people were at home, they were out of their normal environment and intersecting with psychology, that tends to make you a little bit more relaxed. So, you know, these actors go where the opportunities are and there were more opportunities during that period.
0: Yeah, and to your point, I, I actually made the comment last week that, look, ransomware has been around a really long time and it was ravaging schools and hospitals in the U.S. for a long time. Yeah. So if if what it took was, you know, for our fuel supply in the U.S. and our beef supply to be potentially compromised to get the right amount of attention around it, I'm all about it, but we need to recognize this isn't a today problem it's been a very long term problem it's just accelerating and we need to treat it as that type of threat
1: yeah i think um, one of the things is that it it's a continuing problem because it's the same things that make us it vulnerable it's the basics the security elements that we sometimes miss and the, that human factor which is also normal <laughs> you know we've got a 150,000 year old brain it's not going to be 100% accurate in not clicking on a link that it shouldn't
0: well, exactly, but it's it's very difficult. And we, we you know, when we talk about your work, right? It's very difficult for humans, you know, we're creatures of habit, right? And we also don't do enough, you know, part of you know, defeating ransomware is actually doing a better job of educating humans to interrupt that pattern of behavior.
1: Yeah, that, that definitely reduces the
0: the likelihood. So I read the report that was produced by the Cyber Resilience Alliance as I was preparing for this, and I know you're a member of the steering committee. One of the focus areas there was on the key to industrial success in the future was not just establishing cyber businesses, but it's also about embedding cyber skills and principles of secured by design into the existing industrial infrastructure. When we look at supply chain attacks, what should organizations be thinking about as they invest in their cyber resilience plan? And how do they think about maintaining their business continuity as they look to this future growth?
1: Oh, so that's, there's, there's quite a lot of things to unpack there. I think one of the challenges about Secure by Design is that sometimes there's a tension between that and cost and being ahead of the curve on innovation. And, you know, investors look to investing organizations that are ahead of the curve because they want to capture that market and sometimes that means that the security that should be built into products isn't maybe as uh, finished or polished as it should be and that's a challenge the other challenge comes from in a way the supply chain in that how procurement happens so you you talked earlier about the fact that um, healthcare has been a, a consistent target and one of the reasons for that is they've got a lot of Um, machinery that maybe is dependent on older operating systems they can't update it because the procurement involved it being fixed on an operating system that would work on and then they start having to um, build walls around these things which then makes it harder for that technology to speak to each other so you know some of these things that sound really easy to do on paper aren't really that easy to do in real life So I think really when you're looking at investing in a cyber resilience plan, part of it is looking at things like your procurement processes, you know, the the stuff that trips you up later and also to to really test this stuff. Um, The the amount of organisations that you see that think they've got backups and then they don't work, or, you know, they haven't done a live test of well, what happens if a breach occurred or if i did get ransomware you know they, they test for a fire alarm every year but they don't test for something that's actually far more likely so so those kind of things that they, they, they're real basics but but people don't always do them and it, they don't even always use the technology they've already invested in like you know microsoft has quite a lot of things that you can do just on the servers but um, not everybody has done so you know <laughs> stuff like that really really
0: needs to be looked at so we talk about cybersecurity hygiene or, or getting, you know, getting the fundamentals right before you start thinking about all these great, great, and they are good technologies, but you know, to your point, I wanna talk about backups for just a second. Um, most organizations back up, right? They have compliance reasons, they back up. Very few organizations I know actually on a regular basis test that they can restore from those backups. And they haven't segmented their networks properly, so those backups are in a safe place if they are compromised. And I think just those type of things, right? So your ability to recover from that cyber attack or that ransomware attack is dependent on you actually having some things done fundamentally in infrastructure that may not even be cybersecurity best practices. Would you agree? Oh,
1: absolutely. And you know, I I know personally, it's particularly small businesses where you know it's. They, they maybe haven't got the financial resilience where they were doing their backups, but they were online backups and of course they were connected permanently to their system. So as soon as ransomware happened, it, it encrypted all their backups too. And and that is such a, a tragic thing to happen. Um, but a story that happens again and again, and the larger the organization, um, they have similar challenges you know they might have backups but you know taking the systems down or, or whatever to test them isn't isn't done and and it's finding the time uh but like i said they find time for fire alarms but they don't necessarily find time to test things so you know maybe there's some legislation in there that, that needs to be done as well I'm i'm not sure on that one <laughs>
0: Yeah, I well, I think that one of the things we as cyber professionals could do better is talk to people about those things, not just our, you know, and I'm talking about this from a vendor perspective, right? Not just our latest tool, but let's continue talking about what the processes you have and how you secure your infrastructure also as part of, you know, the tooling
1: conversation. I think there's another element as well, which is um, not passing it on so so many people only look at firewall rules for example that go inbound and they don't look at the ones that go outbound so that if something does happen to them they're not compromising the people that rely on them too so you know that that's one of those questions that you know i wonder sometimes when people do a supply chain analysis whether they're actually looking at it in a more holistic way in terms of taking care of your neighbor <laughs>
0: There was at least one report that one U.S. entity was not impacted by SolarWinds because they had cut off that outbound communication as a
1: standard process. Yeah, and the same things with, um, you know, using the the software um, configurations that are in Microsoft, for example, so that it doesn't run some of the stuff if it makes it onto the systems, you know, that it, that's quite a useful little safety net. Exactly. Well, that that that's all interesting, and I think I
0: think we need to always every conversation we have with cyber professionals. That I think we need to be talking about ransomware just to continue the education. I want to shift the focus a little bit. Um, in 2019, you gave a talk about how diversity can help fight cyber attacks. I want our audience to know from you as an autistic woman in cyber, you have advocated from experience for diversity. You're an expert on it, obviously, you're a researcher and you provide advice to a lot of organizations, published articles on specifically why diverse companies are more successful. I'd like you to share a little bit about your thoughts on that and why diversity matters when it comes to fighting cyber attacks and why we need to lean in. Absolutely.
1: So I I could, you know, I've got statistics that I could reel off, but I'd rather take it really down to the basics. And that is um, I'm a big fan of a writer called Sun Tzu, who wrote a book called The Art of War, which is still current, and, you know, you've even got an art of war for executives, and he basically said, if you want to defeat your enemy, you've got to know how they think, and I'm paraphrasing wildly, but, but, you know, that that's the concept, and the reality is attackers don't come in one flavor, so if we want to stand a chance in our industry of really defeating attackers. We we need people on the other end that are having differences in thought, and we need lots of ideas at the table. Now, um, it's already been proven that if you have a more gender diverse board, then you're more successful on your bottom line. And the same thing goes for your thought types. So if you've got a neurotypical board, then the way that their brains work irrespective of their backgrounds and everything else is, is very similar when you start putting into the mix neuro atypical people or neurodivergent people depending upon your preference for language then we are hardwired to think differently so for example in the autistic brain um, if you imagine a neurotypical brain when you have information it's like a library of books all on a shelf and you take out the information that you want a autistic brain it's more like the books are all open on the desk all at once and that tends to mean that it's it's more easy easy for me to become overwhelmed by information but also i tend to make connections that other people don't make and that's why i'm on six boards and people keep asking me to to input into their systems and processes and things because i will spot things that other people don't and that is a strategic advantage for a business the same thing for dyslexic people um, Richard Branson a number of other people, but very, very, very well known entrepreneurs who have spotted big picture things that are opportunities in the marketplace that others have missed. And if you look at so many scientists like Tesla and so many um just geniuses like Mozart, that they come from that neuroatypical thought process. And why wouldn't you want to build that around your board or around your innovation space? So it's about success, and it's about innovation, and it's about resilience. And everything we do fits into two jobs: innovating, creating new stuff, and resilience, protecting that stuff for ourselves or for others. And so that neurodiversity. Is really important and all diversity is important to make sure that you've got that wide variety of options on the table for you.
0: So I agree with you completely, and I've actually talked about it and written about it and tried to put it in pragmatic terms that said, look, we rely on machine learning and diversity of signal for better better outcomes. Why wouldn't we rely on diversity of human thought?
1: For better outcomes absolutely and in finance you diversify your portfolio if you want to reduce risk or increase opportunities and the same thing for people Um, i think the only challenge is that you know people are a bit like plants every plant needs a different set of Uh, environments. So some need more light. some need to be in the shade, some need lots of water, some need it to be quite dry and arid. So every person has a different set of criteria for them to thrive and therefore perform their best in your business. But we haven't necessarily got that bit right yet in, you know, providing what people need to thrive and succeed. I
0: I completely agree with you Um, and as we talk about that, you know, Microsoft has this philosophy of bringing our our whole self and our authentic self to work. And we, we do a lot, I think you've probably seen with autistic and neurodivergent hiring. Um, but, but we're still not there yet, right? And I'd love, love from your perspective, some of the hurdles you've come up against as you've had these conversations with government organizations and private sector, you know, how can you convince them it's the
1: right thing to do and not just one more thing they need to do? So part of the, the big challenge is how early we are in representation so if you look at the language that is used around um, neurodiversity a lot of it comes from the language of lack which is kind of the medical model so it's always about what do i need to do and how it will it how much will it cost me to support you that's the the wrong framing and the wrong mindset When you look at it from the point of view of any employee, which is what do I need to do to make you thrive and succeed so that I'm optimising my investment in you, that's a different mindset and a different conversation. It's a much more positive conversation. And so it becomes a conversation not about how functioning you are, but about what support I can give you and every other employee. It's about preferences rather than needs. And so really one of the things that I'm working quite hard on is changing the language of neurodiversity to to have support conversations rather than functioning conversations, to have preference conversations rather than needs conversations. I mean, they are needs, but everybody has needs to to thrive. And so, you know, when I'm talking to government folks or any business folks, it's, it's about that first. It's about kind of changing that framing before you can really move forward proactively.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's, I think it's hard. And I think you the first thing you said, we're early in representation. I think we're in the evangelizing stage and it's always hard when you're early. It will pick up, we'll get momentum, but we have to do the really
1: hard work for a while. I think the other thing is we can learn from other sets of people that have gone through this process. So I currently spent again neurodivergent brain. I'm always making connections. So I'm always looking at what's happened with the LGBTQI plus community and how farther ahead they are than the neurodiversity sort of movement and what can we learn from them and other you know disability rights movements and things like that to sort of say, well how can we do this faster, do it better so that we can, you know, accelerate our journey and then learn from those fantastic sets of people. And I think that's a good place to start.
0: Who has been successful, you know, getting more mainstream, if I will, right? I, I think the LGBTQ community um, would tell you, I'm actually an executive sponsor for Microsoft Gleam, which is our global LGBTQ community, would tell you that they've come a long way, but there's still a very long way to go. Um, but I think it is a good model for when you're starting. I love
1: that. Absolutely, and, and there's a lot of intersectionality between Uh, the neurodivergent community and the lgbtqi plus community as well because we tend to have a lot of alternate (laughs) varieties (laughs) in our makeup which is fantastic uh so so yeah i i love i love that it's what
0: makes the world interesting that we're all so different and we need to we need to embrace that rather
1: than try to make everyone
0: look and sound the same
1: Absolutely. I, I do have a little bit of a dream that one day aliens will come to our planet, not because I'm kind of some space nut, but because I, I think that that's the thing that will finally let humans go, oh, we're all humans. We're all the same. We should be all getting on. It's almost like we've got this inbuilt need to other somebody. And I think the only time that we'll ever get humans all going, we're all humans. It's all fine. As, as if some you know green folk turn up from Mars or something, I don't know. But, um, there's a little bit of me that keeps wishing it was the world of Star Trek.
0: <laughs> if something threatens or um, challenges the humans, you're right. we may actually come together as humans, and that would be that would be beautiful. yeah, well, i I could ask you a thousand questions, but I, I've been told I have to, you know stay on schedule. My producers like that. So, um I do want to touch on a couple of other things, that application of an in intersection of cybersecurity and business psychology. You've given several keynotes. You've been written extensively about the rise of automated attacks, mm. the future of automated cyber defense, and um, hacking the human brain. What do you find are commonalities between all these topics?
1: So, so interestingly, I think the thing that I've spent most time on are things like AI and future technologies that are going to shape our society, because. As I mentioned earlier, the things are often driven by investment and that means that sometimes the ethical side and the things that maybe can slow the process down or getting the right team that's diverse to make sure that nothing's missed can slide sideways and that, that can cause some some real challenges where you, you're almost building in discrimination by design which has some significant future implications for society. So I've spent quite a lot of time around that, highlighting things that can be done to minimise that risk and also maximise the opportunity to to create fantastic things that do things right the first time. And and so I think there's a lot of intersectionality there. And part of that is because we build in our own biases. (laughs) So, you know, whether it's looking at when Amazon did that hiring algorithm, and unfortunately it it discriminated against women because the data sets had mainly men in, or whether it was the database that was designed to find criminals in the UK, and unfortunately it had mainly young black men in the gangs matrix, and it wasn't mainly young black men that were offenders. So that was described by, I think, Amnesty as a, a, a system that was criminalizing a generation. Of young black men and so we really need to be quite careful about building in our biases to the future technologies that we will rely on because we tend to trust technology to make a decision and that's a dangerous precedent if we haven't looked really at at how that's going to work and i think one of the challenges of that is that there really isn't enough legislation around that at the moment in that sometimes it's how this stuff works is behind a, a a blanket you know with the wizard going it's going to work um, but that isn't always the case i i think the language we use too i, I wrote a blog it's been quite a while
0: um, on the language of cybersecurity and the militaristic language we use um how that prevents us from a being more inclusive and more diverse but it also binds us in this how we think about cyber defense, even, right? And how we think about humans should approach cyber defense. Do you have a point of view on that?
1: Wow, yeah. It re- yeah, the language of cybersecurity started in the Cold War. Um, I actually did some studies around hiring language. And bearing in mind, you can now run almost any document through an algorithm that will tell you whether your language is male biased or female biased or um, whether it's neutral Um, it will tell you the complexity of your language you know whether a 12 year old could read it or whether it's phd level and and i put through quite a good significant cross-section of average job adverts for starter entry-level jobs and most of them were pitched at phd level in terms of languaging and then we wonder why we sometimes struggle to get, get really great people into our industry. And so, for example, there's almost never, as far as I can see, any lack of people wanting to get into gaming. You know, or that when you look at the amount of people trying to get into the gaming industry, it's always disproportionately large compared to people wanting to enter cybersecurity. And when you look at the adverts for gaming jobs, typically they're couched in lower um, age, age, language—they involve lots of training, and the language is stuff like "come and make people happy," <laughs> "come and make things that will give people pleasure," "come and have fun together," and we will teach you how to do this. Then the cybersecurity jobs are "come and enter this never-ending war," which you will probably fail at and at some stage be blamed for. And it's like, mm, ooh, which of those two might I go for? I I can't decide, but you know that's that's really common we we talk about it's not when you're going to be attacked you will be attacked so it it's it's not really that appealing it, it's not and we we
0: also we say things like sandboxes and detonation chambers but i think it's also a societal issue i was reading a study that was done they translated a bunch of terms you know a little outside of cyber but still you know relevant to us They translated a bunch of terms and and phrases from Turkish to English and Turkish is a gender neutral language. And what was fascinating to me was that when it went to English, the amount of bias that was built into the machine learning engine that did the translation. For example, he was a doctor. She was a teacher is what came out of the the machine, right? Mm. And as we think about how we Build, you know, and I'll take. I want to take this one step further because if we think about how we build these machine learning engines, the diversity of who's building them is incredibly important because then you don't get that bias. You don't get language bias either.
1: Yeah, and and I'm a big, huge proponent for having mixed teams, and um, the AI industry generally definitely needs to do some work in in that area and for example i know that the first um, apple watch didn't work for women because they forgot to account for periods and how that changes our bodies and and all of our sort of statistics and i can't but think that if they had had a better team in terms of mix that that might have been spotted and there would have been a huge cost for that you know these things are costly mistakes so yeah, I, I completely agree with you and that having a diverse team is a, a business benefit in terms of making sure you get it right.
0: Yeah, I'll put one finer point on that. that I think everyone can relate to um, automatic water faucets in public bathrooms. The early ones did not accommodate black skin. So, you know, um, it was really challenging because obviously no one in the development process of that, you know, you can assume, right? That was oh. their use case.
1: Well, <laughs> so, and and uh, even even things like you, you pick up some plasters that are designed to be neutral skin-toned plasters, they're always pink. Yeah. Well, That's, I appre- this has been fat we've we've covered a lot of ground, by the way, from yeah.
0: ransomware <laughs> to cyber defense to uh, making sure your teams are really diverse, including neurodivergent, diverse. And I love the examples you gave of Richard Branson and Mozart and Tesla and people that are brilliant, right? and, and why. I really appreciate you joining today. It's, it's been a fascinating conversation, and we've been able to cover so much ground. Any final thoughts, but also we try to leave our audience always with three practical things they could do today to improve their
1: security. So I would say, first of all, thank you for inviting me. Um, secondly, I would like to thank Microsoft because I've learned quite a lot from some of your colleagues that I've then used and spread in the UK so I think it's great to have these kind of conversations and vice versa I've shared stuff with them um, so it's great to have these conversations about what people are doing that moves forward systems and practices and policies and to share good practice to accelerate and so in terms of diversity and cybersecurity, I think one of the easiest ways to check your bias is to connect to the harvard bias tests and just do some of them you don't necessarily even need to share it but my genuine belief is that most people if not all people would want to hire fairly they would want to give people a fair shake at any position but how can you do that if you don't know what your own subliminal bias is you know how can you do that if you don't know what your own barometer is So if you've got anybody that's in recruitment in your organization or you're doing the recruitment, please just take the Harvard bias test. Find out where you are on that barometer and then you can mitigate your own biases and be aware of them because you can't act on what you don't know about. So that would be that. And then to use some of those language checkers and and just do some practical things in terms of that. What I have said for people who particularly want to increase neurodiversity is a lot of neurodivergent people say that they won't apply to a position unless they know that there is a comfortable landing spot. So rather than just have the standard legalese that says we, you know, we hire without any bias and blah, 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 is to actually have a welcome mat at the beginning of an advert that just says something like neurodivergent applicants welcome accommodations such as these we are happy to make the amount of job adverts that list about you know the gym membership you can get or perks but don't list you know here are some of the accommodations we're happy to make and we're happy to make others too to show that it's okay to ask you probably already feel vulnerable if you're going for a job so you may not ask for the accommodations that you might need to shine if you're worried that it may disadvantage you, so putting just something on the advert to show that it's normal to ask for those things and natural to ask for those things is cool.
0: I love that, and I think that I think people forget how job descriptions and job adverts, how important they are. We we actually screen um, for diversity in them, but you know what? I don't think we've gone that to that point. So it's 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 a good tip for all of us. Well, thank you so much, Nicola. I really appreciate you joining, and have a wonderful rest of your day you too and thank you so much i also want to thank our audience and i look forward to having you join the next episode of afternoon cyber tea so I invited Nicola to join Afternoon Cyber Tea because she has this really unique background where she understands the technical aspects of cybersecurity. She comes from a neurodivergent background herself and understands the mapping between psychology and cyber and how the human brain works, but also how we need to have diverse thought in cybersecurity to solve really hard problems. It's really been a pleasure to have folks like Nicola on the show, where they bring such unique perspective beyond the day-to-day technical rigor of cyber.
1: This week on
0: the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, we're talking scumbots with Paul Nelson.
1: Believe me, you're going to want to hear this. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.